if we are truly created in God's image, and if we are made with all this emotional and relational complexity, we honor the image of God in us by paying attention to what's going on. We, we do not heal by just singing our worship songs more loudly. We heal by saying, okay, God, uh, some things are broken in here and I'm going to pay attention to that. So I can identify that spot where I need the grace of the risen Christ to meet with me and to bring healing. Welcome to Hope Renewed. Helping you find new hope when ministry leaves you hopeless. The Hope Renewed podcast is brought to you by BIR Ministries. Here are your hosts, Tom Jameson and Sean Nemechek. Today on Hope Renewed, our guest is Chris Davis, pastor and author of Bright Hope for Tomorrow. Chris Davis, welcome to Hope Renewed. Thanks for having me, Sean. Chris, it, it is great to have you here. And we always like to start these podcasts by having our guests introduce themselves. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your ministry journey. I grew up in the South in Atlanta, Georgia, and went to school in Birmingham at Samford University. And when I was at Samford, I heard my first John Piper sermon, mm. and it just lit my soul. And <laughs> I became one of those guys. It's almost like we're all over the place, I guess, who just like, binged on Piper tapes even before they were all in line and in college that was at Sanford from 96 till 2000. And in the midst of that, just found that um, I myself, well, I had always from, I guess, seventh grade, just loved God's word. I had this magical experience. I would say not magical is spiritual experience where I was cleaning my room, picked up my great grandfather's old King James Bible and some friends at church had been raving about the book of Hebrews. And I thought, well, I don't, you know, I didn't like have a quiet time at that point, but I just opened up Hebrews. Mm-hmm. And when I read those words about, uh, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them. Something that the, the Holy spirit just lit something inside me. Mm. And I literally ran down the hallway. My parents were, it was all, all family cleaning day, ran down the hallway to my parents who were cleaning in their room. And I said, Mom, Dad, the Bible is exciting. <laughs> and they're just like, you're supposed to be cleaning. But but they're like, yeah, it is. And oh. and my mom did preset Bible studies. And I just started digging. And I started going to their boot camp and when I was in high school and just dug into the word. And so mm-hmm. I had been since seventh grade. I had been studying the word, um, teaching uh, even as a high schooler teaching middle school classes and then in college teaching, but I never saw that this was going to lead into ministry. So I compare it to Bible study, to Bible teaching, to Bible preaching for me was like crawling to walking, to running. Mm. And the first time I had an opportunity mm. to preach in college it was a total fluke. Actually, I was going to my car to go to church and because we were a Southern Baptist school that had ties to the Southern Baptist churches in Alabama, which are a, about a million, um, they <laughs> so they had this connection where students could go preach. And I knew about this. Um, I was a music major. I was not a, a religion hmm. major, but I uh, was studying music and math. Um, but I saw friends. I said, hey, you guys going to preach? Because they're wearing suits. And why else would you wear a suit as a college yeah. student except <laughs> to go preaching? And so... And so they, and one of them was a good friend of mine. He said, yeah. He said, do you want to preach too? And I was like, ah, that's funny. He said, actually, one of our guys called in sick last night. So there's some poor bivocational pastor that we're going to show up and say, sorry, we don't have a preacher for you. You got to make up a sermon in the next hour. And uh, I'm not brave on many things, but but public speaking is one of them. And I, I thought for a second and I said, let me go put a suit on and I'll be I'll, I'll be right back. <laughs> And from the drive to Birmingham to Tuscaloosa, about 45 minutes, Mm -hmm. I outlined my first sermon. Mm -hmm. And, but you know, when you're like mainlining Piper sermons, like three a day, like it's, (laughs) it's not like you don't, it just comes. Yeah. It's not like you're not familiar with this. And, And when I preached that morning, it was just a wonderful experience. And I got into the rotation because of that and got to preach more. And I was like, man, I love this. Mm. And um, and there was a fateful day about a, a year later from that 
when I was having lunch my senior year, having lunch with a, a, a friend, a mentor who was at Beeson Divinity School. And I said something about, well, you know, I'm not called to ministry. He said, hold on, wait a second. What, what are you talking about? Because in my, I grew up Southern Baptist and we had altar calls every Sunday. Mm-hmm. And like, that's when you either walked forward to give your life to Jesus, to get baptized, to rededicate your life to the Lord, or to surrender to God's call to the ministry. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, um, so that happens during an altar call, right? Well, <laughs> uh, I was going to a PCA church at this time. They didn't have altar calls. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so they I didn't thought, even well, have an altar. <laughs> I, they, exactly. And so not even an anxious bench. Yeah. And so I, uh, so I did, I just didn't know how it worked. And he just simply said, well, you love to preach, right? I said, oh, I love to preach. And he said, and you love to shepherd guys and encourage guys. And and he knew because he was my RA that I had been an RA for a couple of years, my sophomore and junior years of of college. And just because I love to help those freshmen get acclimated to life in college and um, and I said, yeah, I love to shepherd guys and listen to their problems and help them walk through those. He said, Chris, that is God's calling. Mm-hmm. He is. That's what a pastor does. A pastor preaches and shepherds, and God has given you a love for those things. That is your calling. And I was like, oh. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, that, that it, it could be a much longer story, but that was my realization that God was gifting me to be a pastor. I had had people in in high school telling me God was calling me to be a pastor, but I was kind of resistant, like, eh, Mm. he hadn't told me yet. So that's a nice opinion. But finally it became clear. Mm. I love that theme of kind of awakening, you know, Mm. reading something in scripture and getting so excited about it, uh, just jumping at the opportunities or maybe not jumping, but just stepping into those invitations that God gives. And in that, discovering how he's at work and how he's leading. That's, that's awesome. It was very normal and and gradual, which is in organic, which is really nice. Yeah, that's great. So Chris, as we're recording this, we are two days uh, after the launch of your new book. Congratulations. This book is a beautiful book. Um, The title. Yeah. It's just, it's amazing. Uh, The title of it is bright hope for tomorrow. How anticipating Jesus' return gives us strength for today. So, can you give us the origin story of this book? I would love to. Um, so, I was preaching through. I, I'm usually an exegetical preacher, preach through books of the Bible, but I was doing a series called "Grow Up" about spiritual growth and finding. Honestly, it was like me working through my own need for sanctification. But let's be honest, guys. <laughs> Those like, are the best sermons, right? <laughs> I, I am tempted by sin. How help me, right? Yeah. And I was finding just the those those uh dynamite passages in the New Testament that just helped me the most. And as I did that, I started seeing a theme that wait, there's a all of these texts talk about the return of Jesus. Uh, parallel to this, um, I had a, a close family member who was kind of going off the rails on some weird eschatological beliefs. Mm-hmm. And so I was also like digging through the scripture just to like combat that and say, hey, come back to some sanity. Because, you know, people, your Herald campings come along or people like that and and people get sucked into that. And so and it was kind of a dual thing of both uh thinking about the the return of Jesus and say, no, it's not that, it's not what you think it is. But then also in my own pastoral preaching, realizing, wait, this is all over the place in the New Testament. You know, texts like 1 John about everyone who thus, thus hopes in him, in Jesus's appearing, purifies himself even as he is pure. A real mm-hmm. big one was Titus 2 about, you know, uh, uh, the grace of God has appeared um, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And, and it's, that's all that renunciation and living upright and godly lives in the present age. That's all connected to waiting for our blessed hope, 
the return mm-hmm. of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Or First Peter one, where he and the originally we had titled this "Hope Fully," because Peter commands them in one thirteen, "Hope fully." in the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And then he goes into how that that trains us to live godly lives now. So when you start seeing this, I, I actually, I had a home office. This was in Phoenix, Arizona. I had a home office and I ran into the house. My kids were little and they, they had this, um, <laughs> this uh, art easel with, uh, it had a scroll of art paper at the top. And I I ripped off a long length of that art paper and I ran and my wife's like, what are you doing? And I said, I got to do something. And I run back into my home office. My grandfather's big. He was a CPA, have his big desk and stretch it out, pulled out my Bible and just with a pencil, just started writing out every single reference to the return of Christ in the New Testament letters. Mm -hmm. And it was overwhelming. It was dizzying to see how permeating this topic is in the New Testament. And so by the time I looked at it, I thought, man, this is not this is not an article. This is not a just a sermon. This is a book. It will take a, a whole book to kind of capture all this. And, and to be honest, the other piece of it was um, I, I went to the seminary library. At that point, I had uh, studied with John Piper, kind of fulfilling my college dream, <laughs> um, studied with John. At that point, it was only a two-year program. So I moved to Phoenix to become a pastor and finish my MDiv. And I was at Phoenix Seminary, lived just a mile from the seminary. So I, I went to the seminary library and started looking. So where is the book that just focuses on Jesus's return? Not talking about the millennium or the rapture or the mm-hmm. tribulation or, or all, any of these, what I would say are peripheral eschatological issues, mm-hmm. but just focuses on the parousia, that we will see Jesus face to face. And I could not find that book. I even wrote, uh, Justin Taylor was my TA in, in uh, seminary. That was an experience because um, he's brilliant. <laughs> um, and, and I wrote Justin and said, do you know, wh- where's this book? I wrote other guys that I knew who had who are much more well-read than I am. And the book didn't exist. And so I thought, well, uh, maybe I'll write the book. So mm-hmm. that was the, that was the origin story of how this became an idea. That was in 2014, just for those aspiring office uh, authors <laughs> out there. That was, that was eight years ago. And uh, there were many uh, trials and tribulations between that moment and the actual release of the book. But uh, but that was the origin story. Yeah. Well, and and getting into some of those trials and tribulations, uh, I I am not a writer. You both are. Um, but how did writing the book impact you? And, and and I'm thinking especially how how is writing maybe different than study and preaching uh, in the way that your subject material really impacts you? Well, I what I will say is that you know with preaching, it's just every week. You know, you it's like baseball, right? You got to get up to the plate, whether the last time you hit a grand slam or you just struck out looking and kind of walked, you know, walked back to the dugout looking at your shoes. So preaching is just constant with writing. You're like, okay, I kind of control the narrative of when I put this out. Mm -hmm. You can't control like who will put it out. But um, but, you know, you control the narrative some. And to be honest, we all, every preacher deals <clears throat> with the issue of authenticity and just like I'm preaching, you know, this text about how we should walk with Christ. And let me be honest with you. I'm like 70% there mm-hmm. in, in my best days. And so we're, we're authentic about that, right. With our people. And when it comes to writing, you know, I could just put a book out there that's like, well, this is what you should believe about this. But I just think if we're going to, just like when we stand in the pulpit, we should be, there should be an authenticity to it. If I'm going to write something, I don't want it to simply be an academic paper about here's everything that Paul says about the parousia. I want to know that it comes from a place of authenticity in my life. And I'll say this, I wrote a, an unpublished or self-published book on the Beatitudes. It was a, a, a devotional that kind of just took time to pause over 
each of the Beatitudes. And it, it focused on the theme of brokenness. And one of the most impactful comments I got from that, and I just gave it to friends like this, is, it, it may see the light of day one day, but um, I just gave it to friends and church members. But but a pastor friend of mine said, you know, I've read a, a lot of books about brokenness. This is the first book that I I feel like it's written from a place of brokenness, mm. that I could just feel it in your mm. writing. And that really, really stuck with me. And so I sensed that I needed to write this, not just, hey, here's how your life can be changed mm -hmm. by the return of Jesus. But as I was honest about my own life, even a couple years into this, I just, I said, my life is not being transformed. Mm. There's not bright hope in my life because of the return of Jesus. I've just connected some dots, just like I'm charging other people with like, oh, you're just trying to put the puzzle together about what Iran and Russia have to do with the book of Revelation. <laughs> well, for me, it was just a different, like, well, I'm getting it exegetically more accurate, but is my life actually one of hope? And so that actually led to the third part of the book. There are four parts in the book. And the third part is called Rhythms for Nurturing Anticipation. And that section exists because I started asking where in the Bible, where in the New Testament are actual, practical, actionable um, rhythms for reminding us Jesus is coming back. And here's how this can shape your week. And we, we can go into that, but that was um, that was a big impact for me to say, I want to put this out in authenticity. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to those rhythms in a little bit, because that's a fascinating section in the book. But um, you, you started off to write this book about the return of Christ, and there are a lot of really weird strange <laughs> bad books on the return of christ no sean really how do you feel about it? yeah oh, take boy. off the gloves man well i i worked in a bookstore for seven years a christian bookstore and and we saw every one of those things and yeah uh, this is not one of those books though what makes that, this book different well that was i i actually have just so so i can take my kit gloves off as well um i'm opening it up here i have a section in the book called what about the wackos <laughs> <laughs> and so, <laughs> um, I said, we need to talk about the elephant in the room. And because, you know, you have 88 reasons why the rapture will be in 1988. Uh, mm -hmm. My youth pastor, I grew up in Atlanta. My youth pastor would have was at a Braves game and somebody had a sign that said, Jesus is coming. And it was like November 3rd, whatever. And the guy behind him said, well, at least we'll make it through the playoffs. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and then, of course, Harold Camping in mm -hmm. 2011. And um, and like I said, somebody very close to me who had kind of followed the teaching of somebody who had predicted something, in, I think, in 2014. And so, you know, there are always these predictions. I was driven um, by the fundamental question, how can we anticipate an event that we don't know when it's going to happen? That question... I felt if I couldn't answer that question, there is no book, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. and that's why it, um, the Gospel Coalition uh, published an article. There's an excerpt from the book um, about the question, how can we anticipate Jesus, or how can we be changed by Jesus' return if we don't know when it will happen mm -hmm. um, or when it will be? And and the the what tipped for me was the life of Paul. Because um, Paul, it, you know, in, like in First Thessalonians, you're like, this guy thinks Jesus is coming back like next week. Mm -hmm. Like he is, he is there. There is an eminence about the Thessalonian correspondence. By the time you hit Philippians, which depending on how you count, I, I probably is about a decade later. By the time you hit Philippians, he's talking about this like he's in jail he knows he might be executed you know in those days they either chopped off your head or they let you go it was pretty they didn't have overcrowding in jails because right. they, <laughs> they didn't have ankle they, bracelets <laughs> no they either killed you 
or they let you go. Yeah. And so he, as he's wrestling with that in chapter one, like, I don't know, do I want to die and be with Christ? Do I want to stay here? Um, I'm, I'm in this straight betwixt two, as it says in the King James. And, and in that process, you realize, oh, he knows that he might see Jesus first, not because Jesus will return, but because he will die and go be with Jesus if he's executed. And so now things have shifted and Paul still has, there's an imminence about it, but he knows he could die first. And yet he still says in chapter three, um, our citizenship is in heaven and from it, we await a savior, right? And you know, the rest of the verse, but that fact that he's still waiting, he's still anticipating. You're just like, Paul, you just said two chapters ago, you could die first but he says, no, but I'm still awaiting the Savior. And then you fast forward to, um, it, from a conservative perspective, what's Paul's last book, Second Timothy. Mm-hmm. And he's writing his valedictory, I've fought the good fight, I've run the race, I've, uh, or I've fin- kept the faith, I've finished the race. And henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness. And who does he say will get that crown of righteousness all who have loved his appearing. Mm. And so at the end, when Paul knows I'm about to die, he still identifies himself with those who mm. love Jesus's appearing. And that's what flipped it over for me. That's That switched it over to say, okay, if Paul could do it, even if he thought it was still going to happen three weeks after he died, if Paul could live a life of anticipation, of loving Jesus's appearing, then knowing that he would die first, then so can we. Mm. Wow, that's so powerful! Uh, just to consider the the implications of Christ's return um, as applications for our daily living. Yeah, uh, if I may, that, that absolutely, like something you would preach, right? <laughs> Man, it rhymes. So it'll <laughs> yeah, preach. No, you know, either alliteration or rhyming, and you get a message on the way. Taking notes that'll but, go out Sunday. And <laughs> and uh, so you 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 pull the title of the book, of course, from the great hymn of faith, uh, "Great Is Thy Faithfulness," uh, uh, and the line "Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow." Uh, so, why are the words hope and strength particularly? Um, which you've connected to the return of Jesus here. Why why are those words so important for us as Christians and and especially as pastors? On the in the back of the uh, book, I say that hope is fuel. Oh boy, do I love that line! Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that was you know, Sean will know this from being in the writing process that you have all of these big ideas and then they're like, okay, you need to sharpen it down. Like, what is? <laughs> Bring it to a few Give me words. three words here. <laughs> not even tweetable. Can't put it on a banner, like yeah. not even 280 characters. And and that that phrase, as I was pondering this, like how can I, not even an elevator pitch, what is a three-second pitch? And that's mm-hmm. the pitch that hope is fuel. And I think your listeners will know those moments when you feel disconnected, when you feel despair, and you just don't even want to get out of bed, you know, because why? What another committee meeting, another church business meeting, another staff issue. And you just you you get bogged down in the immediate, in the minutiae, in the bureaucracy. And and when we we're kind of like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, where when he's in the dungeon. And they're just sitting there like, well, I guess this is it, right? And then they finally, now forgive me, I can't remember this is with Faithful or with with his other friend, um, but they finally remembered they've got that key mm-hmm. that they can get out of the dungeon. And or, or even from a different perspective, this is why Pilgrim's Progress is such an enduring book. Um, the allegory, not only of being in the dungeon and needing to get out of the dungeon, but also Vanity Fair. The, the reason as they go to Vanity Fair that they were able to say, no, we're not here to buy what you're selling. We are on our way to the celestial city. Mm-hmm. There is this sense of something greater, something ahead, something brighter mm-hmm. that gives us strength 
whether it's through discouragement or whether it's through temptation, that strength to keep moving to something bigger and better. And that that greatness, and, and I try so hard in the book to do this, that greatness is not the streets of gold. It's not the um, the the crystal sea, just insert your favorite Southern gospel song about heaven. It's not, <laughs> it's, it's not all those things. It's Jesus himself. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. It's, it's the actual uncreated glory of Jesus. Mm. And I may be getting ahead of myself, but what I love about the new Testament letters, and this is why I focus on the letters is that, well, first of all, because we can argue till the cows come home about the Mount Olivet Discourse in the book of Revelation. And so I just, I barely touch those. Mm-hmm. But but the letters are written in real time to the churches who are, are just living life just like we are. And, and when you think about who is writing, um, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself, even as he is pure, it's John who saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration in his mm-hmm. unveiled splendor mm-hmm. and who saw Jesus on the Isle of Patmos when he's in, you know, in prison, mm-hmm. who, who is writing to Titus that uh, about the blessed hope of our great God and savior, Jesus Christ. It's Paul who saw the unveiled splendor of the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. Mm-hmm. I had this moment as I was, I was conceptualizing this book and talked to the new Testament professor, John Del Husay at, um, um, at Phoenix seminary at the time. And John said, you know, there are multiple appearings of Jesus. And I said, what? And he said, he appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. He appeared mm-hmm. to his, his disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration. He appeared to John on Patmos. And so you we have this sense of, okay, this is what it will be like. And take note, the very guys who saw this are saying to the church, no, trust me, <laughs> you <laughs> cannot imagine what is ahead. And it is like, it will clarify your ministry. It will purify your heart. It will give you fuel for perseverance through affliction. If you set your hope on seeing Jesus Mm. face to face. Mm. And isn't Mm. that the key that, that setting your hope, um, that, that it's, it's an activity, it's an intentionality, it's a a posture. uh, Absolutely. We have to continually uh, work on. And it forces us to ask, okay, if my hope is not in that, what is my hope in? Mm -hmm. Is it when I flip open Twitter? Is it how many likes and retweets I got that day? Is it how many people pat me on the back after the sermon and say, good sermon, pastor, or how many books sell or (laughs) checking out Amazon, Amazon (laughs) numbers and, and, or how many conferences I get asked to speak at where it really asks us, where is, uh, forces us to ask, where's my hope? You know, that brings up a kind of a thought for me. Tom and I both work with pastors who are struggling, uh, who are isolated, uh, lonely pastors who honestly are having trouble finding hope for themselves. Um, You recently published an article on lonely pastors. And uh, can you just talk about that a little bit and, and how being with other pastors can help us find that hope again? Absolutely. Yeah. Again, with, you know, I don't think in, in Pilgrim's Progress that Christian would have made it to the celestial city uh, without faithful or without, you know, the the friends that God brought along the way. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, you know, how everybody's going to put that in their theological construct. Um, but but when I read the book of Hebrews, um, I, I think, I, well, and this, I didn't come up with this, but I I think the best reading of Hebrews is that we need each other to make it through the desert into the promised land, right? The chapters three and four that uh, the Old Testament picture of them traveling through that um, the 10, what what the 10 needed in Hebrew, the author of Hebrews says this, what those 10 spies and the people of Israel needed was to be joined together with those who believe. So Joshua and Caleb were saying, if God delights in us, he will deliver us. He will fulfill his promises. And we need to be connected with those who do that. 
Now I go into what that means for the layperson in uh, the chapter in my book on gathering as a discipline, as one of those rhythms for nurturing anticipation. But we need that as pastors. And I am thoroughly convinced that we must create spaces where we can be known, mm. where the threats to our hope can be exposed. And let's just be honest, guys, we don't have that in our churches largely. Now, there may be some pastors out there saying, no, I've got an elder board, or I've got a pastoral support team, or I've got a, I've got somebody in my church who's a therapist, and they say, hey, off the record, you can say anything you want. God bless you. If you yeah. have that, <laughs> praise the Lord. Um, I am not waiting around for that to come to me. Mm -hmm. Um I am at the point after enough therapy and um and 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 bouts of excruciating loneliness myself, I'm at the point where I'm convinced we need to be proactive in creating those spaces. Mm -hmm. So this came together just as a brief story for me a year ago, where I took what I call an emergency sabbatical because I hit such a point of of intense loneliness in the context, and I'm not going to get into the details in the context of some church drama happening, mm -hmm. but you, you can, and our, your listeners will know there are times when you go through church drama and you're well supported by others mm -hmm. and, and you say, I can leap over mountains, right? If, if the Lord is with me and if these mm -hmm. brothers are with me and, and then there are other times when you feel alone and like Moses in the book of numbers, you say, God, would you just kill me? Because, uh, so my wretchedness is not exposed. Mm -hmm. And when I read that text, you know, people are saying, give us meat, give us meat. And, and Moses is like, God, how am I supposed to take care of these people that you conceived? I didn't give birth to this people <laughs> and you, and they're saying, give me meat and I can't give them meat. And, and I, I wouldn't say that Moses was suicidal in the sense that he was making a plan to end his life. And I, I was not at that point, but I was, I did resonate with Moses, with Elijah, who said, you know, just take my life mm -hmm. because I'm, I'm all alone. And, um, and so I, I joined a therapeutic, uh, group with uh, Kurt Thompson and his associates called conf a confessional community um, where, and you can read in his book, the soul of desire, the, the way the liturgy goes, but it's just about, it's about telling our stories and pausing for others to resonate. What are you feeling right now? As you hear Chris share his story. And then after they share, it's about me. Uh, the facilitator says, so what are you feeling as, as you hear, their emotional response to your story. And it's amazing. All of a sudden you feel less alone. You feel, mm -hmm. you feel heard, you feel seen, you feel known in a way that if you don't pause and ask those questions, you may not. And then we, we take it one step further where, where the, the others in the group are asked, okay, you've, all you did was show up emotionally. You didn't give advice, not allowed to give advice. Right. <laughs> you didn't, <laughs> You you just showed up emotionally and you now you're hearing what your presence did for Chris. Uh, what are you feeling because of that? And it just reinforces like thread, just knitting our hearts together mm. in this connection. And I'll tell you, um, so so what happened is um out of that, I asked the one of the facilitators of the group, like, what can I do to not end up in this desperately lonely place again? And he said, well, take, because the, the group is a short-term group. It was an eight-month group. He said, start what we're doing in this group. Start a group like that for pastors. And so I just thought of the, like the most desperate pastors I knew <laughs> who, who would be, who are friends, who would be willing to give an hour a week um, to something mm -hmm. like this. And I had one pastor who just left his church, I would say, after verbal, emotional, and spiritual abuse that lasted for years. Um, another who is feeling just desperately lonely because of a, a situation I won't get into, but it, a situation where he did the right thing and he lost his best friend. Mm -hmm. um, and then and then someone else who came along who was passionate about this work. And after about two or three weeks, um, 
the the guys who were a little suspicious of it at first, like, uh, oh, talking about feelings. I don't know. <laughs> like, <what? laughs> After two or three weeks, those guys unanimously and independently said, an hour is not enough. Let's do an hour and a half. Wow. And we've been meeting an hour and a half a week um, for almost a year now. And it is absolutely indispensable to life and ministry for us. And it's it's a new passion of mine to to say, how can we create these spaces, not where we brag about how many people got baptized last year, not where we just moan and groan about our problems, which we do. And even our group recently, we were like, why? How is it? This was just Monday. How is it that we do talk about our problems, but it's not like, you know, at the at the local breakfast spot where those old guys are just you know sitting on the <laughs> mm-hmm. on the counter and griping about you know thanks obama or whatever you know they're <laughs> griping about politics and and um it's like it's not we're talking about our problems but it's not that we're not wallowing and we try to put together but but what we came up with is because we come for each other mm-hmm. we're not com- we're not we're not coming to just gripe we're coming for i'm coming for you I'm saying, Sean, what are you? What's going on for you right now? Mm-hmm. What are you feeling right now? And I want to be present. And ultimately, it's it's about not being alone, and and being known. Mm-hmm. And a, an amazing thing happened. I had had just a, a I would say, a triggering event um, this past weekend. It just brought up a lot of church hurt in my heart, and I was able to share it with these guys. And one of the other guys had had a recent event really painful where, you know, you're giving your life for a decade and then somebody just questions you in a way that where you say, are you kidding me? Like you're asking me that and you've known me for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And an amazing thing happened in the conversation where all of a sudden we both in, in our, in our coming for one another and resonating with where the other was, it just flipped. It flipped Mm. from pain to presence and and we were both like and and there was one of the other guys who's kind of just help helping facilitate this liturgy back and forth between us keep us on track and and we're like we're just so happy to be here Mm. with Mm. one another and one of the guys said guys this is the most real place in my week where we can just be authentic and open with each other but not for the sake of complaining but for the sake of being known. Mm-hmm. And so honestly, this is a, a new passion of mine. And we're we're starting some pilot work here in Northern Virginia to figure out how to do this with, with groups of pastors. And after we do this in kind of an intensive way for, for four or five months or however long it needs to be to get to gel, um, to then launch them off to say, okay, you guys, here are your guidelines. Somebody's got to be the parent, you know, have to have mm-hmm. a couple parents in the group. But but keep going, and and like this should be top of your list, and it will be indispensable for staying healthy in ministry. Wow, wow, mm. that's so beautiful. And is there a sense of uh, just as I'm thinking about the theme of your book and and what we've been talking about prior to this, that what that time does is contextualize it contextualizes hope in our lives. So it's yeah. not merely that we're being present. It's like, you know, I got a good chum here and I can just, you know, know that he'll accept me for who I am. It's that we're doing this in the presence of Christ. And, and suddenly this hope that you speak of anticipating his return just becomes the context in which we begin to view everything in our lives. Yeah. I, I don't know if I'm overstating it or trying to read into that. You, but. you aren't. And here's here's what's come out for me. I, I just alluded this briefly in the TGC article. It, you know, when you go to a mall, and so the first time I went to Grand Rapids um, to be in, in Zondervan world, mm-hmm. and it was it was great. Uh, and I went to the, the bookstore, the bookstore. It was wonderful. <laughs> but um, I did. I, I went to a mall to have a meal. And when I first thing I did when I walked in, is I looked at that the map they have that kind of kiosk where it says um, you are here, and so so well I want to eat at this place 
And um, so if I'm here and I want to get there, I need to start out with where am I right now, right? Mm. And and here's what I think, this is just my hunch. I'd love to get your thoughts on this. My hunch is that a lot of pastors know all the verses about hope. They know all the truths about Jesus coming back. But when you ask, so where are you? Mm-hmm. That's that's part of our problem. Mm-hmm. And so, so much of what we do in these groups is we, and, and the, this I'm borrowing a lot of this from Kurt Thompson's books. So much of what we do is that we slow down and we pay attention mm-hmm. because we can be so eager to say, no, the store is over here. Like, see right here, it's right here on the map. It's like, that's awesome. But if I don't know where I am, mm-hmm. <laughs> then then how can I get there? And so a lot of these rhythms, um, even you know, Sabbath does this, uh, Sabbath rest, fasting does this. It causes us to slow down. And community does this. It causes us to slow down and say, so where are you? And really, that's the first question in the Bible, isn't it? Adam, Mm -hmm. where are you? God knew where Adam was, Mm -hmm. but Adam needed to know where Adam was. And I I think that that pursuing question of God, where are you, is one that we need to pause over. And I'll be totally honest. Within arm's length, well, I've got to lean over. Within arm's length of me at, in my desk here in my church office, I have a feelings wheel, <laughs> which mine's right I, here. <laughs> I yep. pull mine up. <laughs> I've got one too. Which I guarantee you, as and I, uh, as a a kid growing up in the chauvinist South, um, where. Where you're allowed because three feelings, right? <laughs> mad, sad, or glad. That's it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they have to rhyme too. Um, feelings were uh, ridiculed, mm-hmm. and um, and for me, it's been a journey. And the Lord has put mentors in my life um, who, whenever I get stuck in ministry, I'll, I'll call and say, "Ah, oh, this is going wrong. I don't know what's happening." Da da. And and it's a husband and wife team. I can name them. It's uh, Stephen, Celesta, Tracy. They're wonderful people. They wrote a book. Steve wrote a book called Mending the Soul. They mm. were doing Me Too and Church Too abuse healing work before it was cool. Wow. Um, and uh, wonderful ministry of Portland, Oregon. And Steve was a professor of mine in at Phoenix Seminary. His wife was uh, doing this ministry of abuse healing, creating groups for survivors to tell their stories in a church mm-hmm. context. It's a, an amazing thing. And Celeste would say, so Chris, uh, how's your journaling going right now? How are you? And I would say, oh, man. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I would want to do everything. I would just spin my wheels and talk to experts and read books and do everything, but just sit down and pay attention to the simple question. What am I feeling right now? Mm. And, and there was one point she said, you're just stuck and you need to write the words I feel, and then pull out your feelings wheel and write what, what you see. And then just make yourself right for 15 minutes Mm. because you're stuck. And guys, I wish it didn't work because I want a better solution. <laughs> <laughs> I I want to just outsmart it, right? Yeah. I, mm-hmm. I want to find any other solution than having to slow down and pay attention to what's going on inside. Um, but that's been absolutely necessary. And then Kurt, you'll see this in Kurt's work, you know, asking the questions, what do I feel right now? What do I want? What do I need? What story am I telling myself? Mm-hmm. When am you know what what is the overall narrative like? When have I felt these things before? And as I think about those points that feel so present, even though it was a decade ago, what what is the story I'm telling myself in that? As we, you know, again, I man, I I was in the John Piper world. I'm TGC Reform theology, all this stuff, high view of God. But if we are truly created in God's image. And if we are made with all this emotional and relational complexity, we honor the image of God in us by paying attention to what's going mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. We we do not heal by just singing our worship songs more loudly. 
we heal by saying, okay, God, uh, some things are broken in here and I'm going to pay attention to that. So I can identify that spot where I need the grace of the risen Christ to meet with me and to bring healing. Mm. Sometimes when we're, we're feeling hopeless, we need somebody to hold hope for us and remind us of the things that we know, the things that we believe. Um, and one of the, the things you do in your book is just share several images of who Jesus is from the texts about his return. Um, pick one of those and tell us why you like it. Mm. Well, just to, to list them, and the, what I think is so beautiful is that each of these portraits is written into a specific situation. Mm -hmm. So to the, the, the Thessalonians being afflicted by opponents, Paul writes about Jesus as the warrior king who will vindicate them and afflict their enemies when he returns. He writes about the bridegroom, Jesus being the bridegroom, as the one who will come and, and for us as his bride and that we anticipate that great wedding feast of the Lamb. Um, he talks in the Corinthian correspondence about Jesus coming as the judge, not in a hellfire and brimstone scare you into mm -hmm. salvation way, actually in a way that says, okay, adolescent Corinthians, you keep, <laughs> you keep judging me like you're my judge, even though I'm your spiritual father, but really first Corinthians four, the, the truth of the matter will come out when the Lord appears. Mm -hmm. um, when he mm -hmm. exposes the inward motives of the heart, and then each one's uh, commendation will come from God. And Paul that sees Jesus as judge is actually helping him make it through all this undue, unjust criticism. And that I think that one would mean a lot to pastors. I will say, though, for uh, the, the other one I walk through is Jesus' return as the resurrecting one. And I, originally I call it the resurrected one because he's resurrected and he'll come again. And and he, uh, I, I had the honor of having breakfast with Dr. Richard Gaffin, who's a theological hero of mine. He lives close by. And so I, I said, I want to buy you breakfast and hear everything you have to say. And one of the things he said is, remember, the return of Christ is simply the kind of end cap of the resurrection of Christ. These mm -hmm. are one in the same. Mm -hmm. It's just a delayed manifestation of that of that resurrection of jesus and you know in his mm -hmm. theology resurrection is so prominent and he his work is on, on soteriology and resurrection has been so impactful um but but bringing it down to a a very practical in-person uh level when you when you feel in your own joints age <laughs> and and just getting old <laughs> when you when you look around you and and see that even the organizations that were created to make things better are deteriorating mm. and are getting hijacked by people with ulterior motives. When you see a work that you've done in the ministry that was glorious start to lose its traction, you can just, you can just despair. And, I think we need to have a fixated view on Jesus' return, not only as the resurrected one, but as the resurrecting one. First mm. Corinthians 15, that the, the last Adam is a life-giving spirit. The second Adam is a life-giving spirit mm. that Jesus will come and make all things new. And I know we, in our N.T. Wright, you know, we hear N.T. Wright saying that in our ears, and, and it's a wonderful promise. But truly, truly, he will make all things new. Mm -hmm. the, the, the heavens, the earth, our bodies, society, he will make all of this new. And if we don't have that hope in front of us, that Jesus will come back and by sheer force of his own resurrection, by the Spirit, redeem all of this around us, then I think we're going to labor with frustration yeah. and yeah. and a sense of despair. But but note how significant it is that in the single chapter in which he develops the resurrection of the body in the final resurrection most thoroughly 
in 1 Corinthians 15, how does he end it? He says, so then, brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in mm. the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen. Not because you guys are awesome, but because Jesus is coming back as the mm -hmm. resurrecting one. That's why we can labor and it's not in vain because mm. Jesus will come back. So I know that um, I, I just hope that's a, a word of encouragement for your listeners. I'm encouraged by it. I don't know about our <laughs> listeners. I'm Amen. sure our listeners are too. But that, yeah, that sense of of connection that that our 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 labor is connected to the greater reality, the great reality of what God will do fully in Christ, that is his return. Um, and and then the challenge to me in that, and perhaps to our listeners, is so is my labor attached to that? Yeah. Or am I mm -hmm. laboring for something that that has no ultimate hope mm -hmm. like that? Um no, oh, wow. You you asked us to make sure we we asked you about the quarterback iced arm metaphor. <laughs> Thank you for reminding me. Yes. It's intriguing. You know, um we I, I just love how these two passions, this book about bright hope for tomorrow. And these pastors groups that I'm just passionate about creating space to being known. Um, when I, uh, our, our group, as I mentioned, uh, meets for an hour and a half every week. And most pastors group meet for an hour or two once a month or once a quarter or something mm -hmm. like that. And I'll be honest, I felt guilty at first for meeting that long. Now, to be fair, I so Monday is my study day, um, Tuesdays meetings, Wednesdays Bible study, and Thursday anyway, and then Friday I take off. So, but Monday is my study day, and so nobody, there's no expectation in my church I'm available on Monday because that's blocked off for study, and so I I take that hour and a half from my study day. I don't, you know, I haven't told anybody I can't meet with you because I've got this other meeting. Just to be clear, but even with that, as I thought, boy, can I justify? An 90 minutes every single week spent talking about my feelings with and, and and my desires with other pastors. And then I backed up and I said, yes, I can justify that. Because you know what? If you were at the mall and you saw somebody walking through the mall with a massive ice uh uh with um with a, a couple of pounds worth of ice wrapped around their shoulder. Um, you would say that's really weird. That's odd. Like, mm -hmm. why? Why do you have this? Because um, he's like, oh, my shoulder. My shoulder needs so much attention. My shoulder. But if it's Aaron Rodgers or sorry, Lions fans, I don't know where you guys are. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> sorry, we're getting into some uh, fractious discussions here. Uh, let's just say somebody was retired. Uh, if it's Joe Montana you know, in the eighties, who's got his arm wrapped with ice after a ball game, nobody begrudges him of that, right? Mm -hmm. If it's mm -hmm. the starting pitcher who just went the distance and pitched for nine innings, and then his arm is wrapped after the game, nobody says, oh, you sissy, what do you, what do you have to do that for? <laughs> right? Like yeah. it is part of the deal. Like it is part of maintaining your arm for the sport and for the team. And so if I just know for me, if I want to be maintained and be my healthiest self and not, and here's the key, not suppress these emotions that I'm feeling on, my, on the feelings wheel so that they become toxic and corrosive mm -hmm. to my own heart mm -hmm. and then come out in the middle of a committee meeting or in some shaming, <laughs> yeah. oh, shaming, you know, tirade I do from the pulpit, you know, then if I if I want to be my healthiest and fullest and most authentic self brought to my people for their good and God's glory, then yes, I need 90 minutes every Monday for this group. Mm. So it's, it's, yeah, it's I look rhythm, at the quarterbacks. Right? Yeah. It's yeah. it's absolutely a rhythm. Yeah. So th those rhythms of caring for ourselves is what enables us to care for others. Absolutely. Um, and in your book, you want to come back to the idea of rhythm uh you have rhythms of anticipation that 
provide us with this hope that we need to continue on in ministry and uh, to help our people with. Um, so there's three rhythms you mentioned, gather, fast, and rest. Can you just very briefly talk about each of those? Probably not, but I'll give it my best. <laughs> <laughs> Gathering uh, came to me. I was talking with a church member about this who knew the Bible really well. And he reminded me that at the end of that verse that all the pastors know the first half because we say, hey, don't forsake the gathering of yourselves. And we we all can quote that one. But why does he say that we should gather? It's to encourage each other and all the more as you see the day, capital D day, drawing wow. near. Mm -hmm. So there is an eschatological focus to our gathering together. And whether it's, as I mentioned earlier, Joshua and Caleb saying to the other 10, if the Lord delights in us, he will deliver us. Coming to listen to the Caleb's who can say, these are the promises of God. We're going to sing them. We're going to preach them. We're going to encourage one another daily. And so that's that's part of the rhythm Sunday mornings. And this is what I want the pastors to hear is that I don't have like a 40 days of hope program for you to go through in your church. This is not a mm -hmm. different thing. This is supposed to be built into our regular gathering. The most basic thing mm -hmm. that you do is supposed to point people to hope in Jesus, mm -hmm. as well as what I call hand delivered encouragement. So it wasn't just sitting in the throng and hearing Caleb's, you know, preach and saying amen, but it's that that one another that Hebrews talks about, exhort one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that you might not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so it's 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 that being in each other's lives. For me, it's this pastor's group that I'm talking about. For others, it's your discipleship group, your small group, whatever it might be, in which your specific threats to hope can be exposed, can be confessed, and can be reminded that no god is faithful to his promises mm -hmm. even in how you see paul talk about church discipline has the day of the lord in mind delivering his soul to satan so that he might be saved in the day of the lord or even in how we do communion together that as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the lord's death until he returns and so our gathering together can can be suffused with a hope in Jesus Christ and his return. Uh, the fasting part is from Jesus himself when John's disciples were complaining that Jesus' disciples didn't fast. And he says, "Can they? Can, should they stop eating when we're having the wedding party? The bridegroom's here, man. And then he says, but the day will come when the bridegroom is taken away and then they will fast. And, you know, you can interpret that in different ways. I understand that to mean his ascension into heaven and are waiting for his to return for him to return. The early church certainly understood it that way because they fasted 2 days a week just as the Jews had. And so this fasting specifically for the Lord's return. And in the book I give some um some suggestions for ways to nurture hope as you take that time mm -hmm. of of okay, here's my lunch break and I'm not just going to like do extra emails, I'm going to pause and I'm going to take these steps to nurture hope. And then Sabbath is just a passion of mine because I think it is absolutely crucial to mm -hmm. every pastor's well-being. And I don't know if you guys are big fans of Pete Scazzaro, uh, but I am. And his book, The Emotionally Healthy Leader, is just like, yeah. as soon as there is a budding leader in my book, I'm like, read this, let's talk. Because mm -hmm. I'm not interested in... Um, you know, reproducing unhealthy leaders. Mm. And so Sabbath rest, I love Pete's chapter on Sabbath rest in that book. And so uh, I talk through, and, and I don't think exegetically, this is as directly tied to, you can't draw a line from this, but it's thematically tied of if, if what Jesus will bring again, that a lot of this is from Hebrews. If, if what Jesus will bring is our final rest that Joshua didn't give that we're still mm. waiting if we're waiting for that final rest, then our Sabbath keeping now, and I'm not strict about this. I'm not like this time to that time and you can't watch football or anything like that. I'm just saying, take a 24 hour period where you cease from work 
and where you delight in God and his good gifts. Mm-hmm. And when we do that, we practice. We practice for the day when Jesus will be reigning on the throne and all things will be made new. And I think practicing for that now is so life-giving and can infuse our day with hope Mm -hmm. because we remember, oh, we're anticipating uh, the fact that God will be fully in control and he's in control now, but he will exert that control in the eschaton. We're practicing the renewal of work, which has been so corrupted by the fall, thorns and thistles. And we're practicing the renewal of delight and what it means to simply enjoy a beautiful piece of music or take mm-hmm. a walk through the trees and say, this is my father's world. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't have to rule it right now. I don't have to ha- exert dominion over it. I don't have to fix it. I'm just going to enjoy it for these 24 hours and remember that this is a taste of what I'll do for eternity. That wasn't very short, but I, but that was, uh, <laughs> those are the rhythms. Chris, how can uh, our listeners find you online? I write uh, at the rod and uh, where I collect the articles that I've written. I write, uh, I tweet here and there. Um I try to stay, I try to behave myself on Twitter and, <laughs> uh, but they can uh, find me at Rev Chris Davis, uh, R-E-V-C-H-R-I-S-D-A-V-I-S, Rev Chris Davis on Twitter. And um, you can look at the book's website at brighthopefortomorrow.com. So yeah, the book is titled Bright Hope for Tomorrow. And uh, we always like to end our podcast by asking, um, Everyone, what words of hope would you like to offer pastors? I want to speak to the pastor who's especially struggling and and just say a year ago right now, I was ready to walk away hmm. from the pastorate. I was so intensely lonely and disconnected that um, I was ready to, to just step out. Hmm. And I want to say... You're not alone. There are still 7,000 who have not bent the knee to bail. (laughs) You feel alone, but you're not alone. And there is a way to be known, to be connected, to be appreciated, and to be yourself, and to be able to explore, here's what's really going on in me, without it being toxic and explosive to your church. And I would just encourage you to cry out to God to show you who those people are, that you can create that space to be known. Because um, we ourselves, especially if you read Second Corinthians and see this in Paul, we ourselves not only carry the message, we display the message. And it's in our weakness, it's in our dependence, it's in our wrestling with the thorns and the flesh that we have, that we open our hearts to others, we find connection, and we ourselves become a living testimony of the power of Christ to redeem. And so there is hope ahead. It's not going to come only through reading my book. That's the first step. (laughs) Read my book. (laughs) Available now where best books are sold. But but through finding a community where you can put this in practice and expose the threats to hope in your life to be known by the Joshua's and the Caleb's who will speak the promises of God to you, not as a Christian cliche to band-aid your wound because they're uncomfortable around your discomfort, but those who will really walk alongside you mm-hmm. and and find those places because uh, you don't have to be alone. Chris Davis, thank you so much for joining yeah. us today and sharing your depth of insight and, and experience. And and I I especially appreciate that you use the words eschatological, parousia, and soteriology One of my favorites. on the podcast <laughs> today. So you've raised our <laughs> kind of level. But thank you so much for joining yeah, thanks, us today. Chris. Absolute pleasure to be with you guys. 
And we want to thank you, our listeners, for joining us today. You can find out more about the podcast at hoperenewedpodcast.com and uh, leave us your thoughts there as well. We would love to hear those. It is our prayer that as you anticipate Christ's return, your hope is continually renewed. Thank you for joining us on Hope Renewed. Please help us reach more pastors by sharing this episode with your friends. If you enjoy this podcast, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google, or Spotify, or your favorite platform for receiving podcasts. Thank you. This means the world to us. The Hope Renewed Podcast is brought to you by PIR Ministries. At PIR, we partner with God and the church in the work of pastoral renewal and restoration. Pastors, our goal is to help you cultivate new hope for healthy life and ministry. We do this by building relationships. We train both pastors and churches to promote a culture of ministry health. If you've experienced a forced exit from ministry, we provide a process of restoration for you and your family. We also have proven resources and tools to assist you in the challenges of ministry life. To contact us or to learn more about PIR, visit PIRministries.org.